I'm sorry to tell you there's going to be six, six parts in the whole thing. <laughs> Didn't make it all the way through this week. This week in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are going to be looking at the death of death. All right? The death of death. Uh, simple search in a news bar on the internet Typing in the word death, you'll find all kinds of current events. Uh, just this morning, uh, breaking news was two dead after a Washington landslide, four dead and eight injured in a New Jersey motel fire. 14-year-old boy shoots his dad who's working two jobs, kills him on a bus in Brooklyn. Seven killed in northwestern Yemen in clashes between security forces and Shiite rebels. A teen was killed, another injured, after being hit by a train while walking to the school dance. There's a shootout in Northern California, ends the life of a man in a violent rampage. Officers shot and killed after stopping two people on foot while on duty in Central Florida. We're still keeping our ears to the news to hear about the 227 missing people on Malaysian Airline Flight 370. Of course, they are all feared dead. And, uh, you know, this concept of death, the reality of death is a very relevant subject today. Wouldn't you agree that, that death is something that affects all of us? Uh, staggering statistics are just in 100% of people die. All right. And I round it up there, by the way. Um, <laughs> We think of Enoch and Elijah, you know, taken, taken to heaven. So it's like 99.9999999999% I just rounded up. Hope that's okay. 100% of people die. That's all bad news. That's all an example of, of the, the dark cloud that sin has brought into the world. But in Jesus Christ, there is good news. And death doesn't have the final word. The death of death is something that is brought about through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his rising from the dead has many wonderful effects and implications for the Christian. For those who know that they are going to die someday. And that there's an eternity on the other side of the threshold of death. Some of us are going to die sooner than others. And if we're real, there are people in our church that, you know, they, they don't have that long left. Some in our church, maybe five years left in their life. Some, maybe one year left in their life. Others who are on the younger end of things that think they've got years and years and years and years and years and years left might come to the sobering reality that, man, just a car accident away, just an earthquake away, just a hopping on an airplane away, and uh, death could be today. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, but we see that in Jesus, there's absolutely wonderful hope for those that, uh, that know that death is a reality. And we look in our chapter today as we've seen that the resurrection of Jesus is a, is a historical fact. Eyewitnesses have seen Jesus risen from the dead. Because he's alive, our testimony is true. There's power. There's the hope of heaven. There's many wonderful things we've looked in the last four weeks. And we're going to continue that study on today. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, bear with us as we're starting in verse 21 of chapter 15. But it's all with this idea of Jesus is alive. And because of that, there's, there's incredible hope. Uh, there's incredible implications. There's incredible effects on our life. And so let's just look real quick in verse 21. And uh, it says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, there's a sense in which there's only two men that ever lived on this earth, all right? There's Adam and there's Jesus, all right? Because they are the only men who lived in a condition of perfection. Adam was perfect in his original creation until sin came in, until he fell. 
Not in the same sense of Jesus, but Adam knows something that we have never known. And it's through each of these men that, that uh, there's something that something happened, something occurred that the whole world was affected by. And we see this uh, point by point in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. And if you will, we're going to go through these verses and we're going to kind of compare and contrast Adam, you know, from Adam and Eve, in case you're wondering who this Adam is that I'm talking about. We're going to talk about Adam and we're going to talk about the second Adam, that's his nickname, Jesus Christ. And we're going we're gonna to do more contrasts than comparisons. And if you will, we're going to kind of put a column over here of all that came from Adam. And over on this side, we're going to put a column of all that came through the second Adam, Jesus. Let's do that. I've got on my notes today, everything that the first Adam offered is in red. All right? That's because it's bad. It's in red. And everything that the second Adam has offered is in blue. And so let's compare. Let's contrast second versus the first Adam. So it says, therefore, Romans 5.12, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That's just a whole bunch of bad stuff right there. <laughs> all right. So on this side, we've got first Adam. Sin came through this Adam. Death came through this Adam. Death came through came, came to everybody and through this one guy's actions on that day, everybody has sinned because of this guy. <clears throat> All right? Astronomical effects from disobeying God in one instance to the whole world in this column, thanks to first Adam. Now, at the end of verse 14 in Romans 5, it says that Adam is a type of him who is to come. He's a picture of someone who's to come. He's, a, he's like a metaphor of, of him who is to come. All right? That's the second Adam, Jesus. And how is that? It's because through this guy's one act of disobedience, all this bad red stuff has happened to the universe. It's likewise, through one man's obedience. The whole universe is affected. And we're going to see that. So it says, verse 15 says, the free gift is not like the offense. So we see in this column, first thing to put up through Jesus, there's a free gift. What is it described as over here? An offense. All right. Free gift? Good. Offense? Bad. For if by one man's offense many died... Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So did you catch the bad there? Offense. Many died because of that offense. No bueno. Okay. Over on this side, there's a gift, a present, a gift of grace through the one man abounded to many. Verse 16 says, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. And so we have here kind of a courtroom type scenario, justice taking place through the offense judgment came. The gavel is slammed down in, he in heaven against the offense, and there is condemnation. There is judgment, all right? There is, is hell and depravity and all things uh, terror, terrifying. Judgment against sin. But through the one man's gift, another courtroom drama unfolded where the gavel slams down in heaven and justification to life was the verdict. That means acquittal, declared innocent, able to leave the courtroom outside of bonds and handcuffs to freedom of new life. That's what came through the second Adam's obedience. Verse 18 says, Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, 
many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So final comparison there, through one man's disobedience, many, in fact, everybody became a sinner inherently through Adam, also through Jesus' obedience, many will be made righteous. So our text in 1 Corinthians 15 says, In Adam all die, from the day the curse was given in Genesis 3.19, that says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of the ground you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. In Adam all die. But on the good news end of things, in Christ, or even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now this is not the same type of totality. See, through Adam, all of man, through inheritance, inherited sin. But in Jesus, only those who believe and put their faith in him will be given this life that comes through him. In fact, Jesus says of this life in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So how is one given this free gift of justification of life? How is he given this free gift of eternal life? Through believing in Jesus. It's through resting in Jesus. Now, both the righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected, but the resurrection of the unrighteous is called the second death, and it's to something where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and torment forever and ever. John chapter 5, verses 28 through 30 tells us, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, remember that death is relevant to all of us. And have you ever thought that if you die, you're going to be resurrected one way or another? Think about that for yourself. Think, me, Rory, going to die, but I'm going to be resurrected again. And there's two ways that I'm going to go after the resurrection. I'm going to go to the resurrection of life in Christ Jesus. Or if I'm still found in my sins, I'm going to go to a resurrection of condemnation for all eternity. Now, Paul goes on in verse 23 to tell us an order of events of the resurrection. You might be wondering, when is this resurrection going to be happening, Rory? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, verse 23, each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So we have, first of all, Christ, whose nickname in this chapter has been the firstfruits. He's the first one who's risen from the dead, and that's our hope that everyone else who believes in him will resurrect from the dead. And we know that this is already a historical event. This is something that has happened. This is something that had a place in Judea, in Jerusalem, on the north side of the city. There's an empty tomb there to this day you can go to. And there's wonderful archaeological evidence that it's the tomb that Jesus rose from. And if that tomb isn't enough evidence, there's another one. It's the more popular Catholic, uh, Catholic tomb. And uh, there's also, uh, you know, people that go there to celebrate his resurrection. But uh, incredible evidence, though, that he's resurrected from the dead. So he, that's already happened. Jesus, the order of resurrection, number one, Jesus. He's going to resurrect from the dead, and it's done. Check. You can put a check in that box, okay? Then it says, those who are Christ's, then those who are Christ's. So if you're in Christ, there's hope that there will be a resurrection for you. Now, when does this happen? It, it tells us at the end of verse 23, this resurrection happens at his coming. All right. Now, let's go to a passage that kind of lays out even more what this resurrection is going to look like. 1 Thessalonians 4, 
13. If you have your Bible with you today, why don't you flip over there? It's a good little exercise. gives you a brain, you know, break in the middle of all this. <laughs> flip over there and, because it's good to know where this verse is. It's an incredibly comforting verse. Paul says to the Thessalonians, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Is that word fallen asleep becoming familiar to you guys lately in 1 Corinthians? What does it mean? Death, death right? Death. It's a, it's a nice way to speak of Christian death. That, you know, it's, it's, for us as Christians, nothing more than falling asleep. So, but don't be ignorant about this process of death, what's going to happen. It says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. All right? The Christian at the time of death, the death of a Christian loved one, we're able to sorrow in a way that has hope. And it's a different type of grief than those who have no hope. You know, I have been part of uh, funerals. I've done funerals for young men who didn't know Christ and are probably um, in, in Hades right now, in suffering right now. And, uh, and it's a sorrowful time. There's not a lot of hope. It's a difficult time to speak to the loved ones. Uh, but he says that we have a hope in death, all right? Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So, guys, we're getting a little bit of the, the inner lookings of the resurrection. What's going to happen in the resurrection, all right? Well, the Lord descends from heaven with a shout. Uh, there's a voice of an archangel. There's a trumpet of God, all right? So this is some just incredibly dramatic event that takes place. And it says, in the midst of it, people that are dead already are going to resurrect. Okay? So, there's, it might be simultaneously. It's just before that. Uh, but those who are dead, they're going to rise first. Then, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18 says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So having a good understanding of the resurrection and when it takes place will be something that will allow us in death to sorrow. It's, it's good to sorrow. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But our sorrow is going to be different. And it says we can comfort one another with this theology of the resurrection of the dead. You know, many of you know me, and you know that when I was 19 years old, my dad died. My dad, one of my best friends, one of my heroes, just like one of the coolest guys like I ever have known, loved Jesus with his whole heart. And when I was 19 years old, I had to quit Bible college and come live in a motorhome at St. Charles and take care of my dad as he had brain cancer, he had strokes, his whole left side of his body was paralyzed, lost his swallowing reflex, lost his ability to speak. And rehabilitated him only for about four months later for him to die. But as a 19-year-old, I had just gotten back from Israel. I would just gotten an inner looking at what's going on in Israel on the Temple Mount and the workings between the Muslims and the Jews and the ideas of, of eschatology. And just knowing as a 19-year-old that Jesus was coming back soon. I mean, it might be in the next 10 years, I was thinking. It might be in my lifetime. And even if I die, he's coming back soon. It's incredible to look at Israel and to look at eschatology. And so I had that hope going into this trial with my dad. And when he finally breathed his last breath on July 27, 2001, I sorrowed and I wept and I wailed and I fell down in the hallway many times and I grieved. But you know what? It wasn't the same type of grief as someone who would never see their dad again. It was someone who was just sad that I wouldn't see him for a while. I mean, one day was too much. There's a different type of grief. 
And those who are in Christ are able to mourn and be comforted in the Lord, but they know we will see our loved ones in Christ again, and we will always be with each other, with the Lord, forever. Now, this First Thessalonians passage shows us the concept of the rapture of the church. It says that there's a catching up of those who believe to meet the, the, uh, the bodies of those who've gone before us, who are just like put into their new glorified bodies in that resurrection. And then we are caught up to be with the Lord in the clouds. In the Greek here, it's the word harpazo, and it means to be caught up by force. And it's in the Latin that the word is raptus, and it's where we get the word rapture. And so we see this rapture take place, this catching up of the bride of Christ. This is that idea of the rapture, where Jesus, the groom, comes for his bride, the church. And those who are dead, who've been in the presence of the Lord in paradise not yet in their glorified bodies. When the rapture happens, Jesus will come to the clouds, resurrect the body of those who perished and died, and then perhaps simultaneously, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, this all happens in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And someone did a study once on how fast a twinkling of an eye is. It's, it's like one one-thousandth of a second that an eye will like shoot over to another space. That's like how fast it happens. I, I'm not an ophthalmologist or an optimist, so uh, either way. But it's fast. In the twinkling of an eye, this takes place, and we will be with the Lord in his presence, in our glorified bodies. That passage in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that it will happen lickety-split. All right? In fact, let's read it real quick. 1 Corinthians 15:51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There's a group of people in human history, some point, there's a group that will not die. Isn't that interesting? There's some point in human history where a group of people will not die. And it will be in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, it's my personal eschatological Position, and you're going to hear this at many Calvary chapels, but I'm not going to tell you it's the eschatological position. There are many men who love Jesus and love the Word, and the Word is their authority who would disagree with me, and that's okay. But let me just share, uh, just from my studies, how I believe it's kind of kind of be lined out, and um, and it would be that well, as you see here uh, from 23 and 24, uh, that this rapture would take place just before what's called the tribulation period, where for seven years God is going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, right? And you can read about the great tribulation period uh, in Revelation 6 through 19. It's a horrible time on this earth, like the world has never seen before, and unless God had stopped pouring out his wrath, nobody would survive it. Um, the Sermon on the, on the Olivet Discourse tells us. Uh, so it's a horrible time of God pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. But I believe that just before that, we see the church being removed uh, from that tribulation period so that they will not be a part of it. Uh, after that seven-year tribulation period, uh, in chapter 19 of Revelation, we see Jesus returning to the earth in great glory and in great power, and he's going to smite his enemies and just give them a smack across the face and just destroy anyone who would try to fight against him. And he's going to have come to the earth, set his feet on the Mount of Olives, and at that point he's going to set up what's called the millennial reign of Christ. It's a thousand-year period where Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem on the earth and, uh, but just before that, we see that Satan is chained and put in the bottomless pit during that 1,000-year period. All right? Now, after that 1,000-year period, Satan is going to be released uh, for a chance to lead one final rebellion. And there's different reasons on why God would do that. But, uh, and he's going to get some guys, and he's going to kind of lead this rebellion, and he's going to try to go around the camp of the Lord. And it says in, uh, in Revelation that that rebellion is smashed immediately. 
Like they have no chance. And it just shows the power of the Lord there. Now, this millennial kingdom, this thousand-year period where uh, Christ rules and reigns from the earth, uh, we read of it in Daniel 2, 44. That it's in the days of these kings that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these other kingdoms that had been shown in Daniel chapter 2, and it shall stand forever. I hope you get excited reading about the kingdom of God, all right? Because this is what it's all about, all right? It's about the Lord, like, winning and ruling in total glory and splendor. All right. We see it again in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. He says, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, exclamation point. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So we see the Trinity here. We see the Son and the Father, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, uh, delivers over this kingdom to the Son of Man, to Jesus. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, it says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people the saints of the Most High, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So we have this wonderful period on the earth where Jesus rules and reigns from the throne of David, just as was promised throughout the scriptures. Peter refers to this kingdom as the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is the day of the Lord. This has been the process of the resurrection, all right? And, and regardless if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, there will be a rapture of the church, there will be a resurrection, and there will be this ruling and reigning of the Lord in this period on the earth uh, where there's no wicked one, all right? Satan is chained. He is bound. And we see in verse 25 that Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Just as the psalm prophesies in Psalm 110.1, when the Lord says to the Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You see that? God the Father, God the Son. It's like that, the Ancient of Days speaking to the Son of Man. And he says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In that process of all the enemies just being placed under Jesus's feet. This is an Old Testament concept of just like total dominance in battle. All right. Just completely taking over. Uh, we see in verse 26 that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, if you've ever lost anybody, if you've had anybody die, if you've seen the effects of death, if you've been in a war this verse should make your heart jump with joy because it shows us that death has a death, all right? No more sorrow, no more pain. Death will actually be destroyed. And you see here in verse 26 that death is referred to as an enemy. Paul tells Timothy that our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so in Revelation chapter 20, after Satan's final rebellion is crushed, he's cast into the lake of fire for eternity. This lake of fire is a place that was created for the devil and his angels, the scripture tells us. And let's just read of that real quick, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. Now when that thousand-year reign of Jesus expires... Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand and the sea. So over a thousand year period, you have all these people that grew up in an environment where uh, is similar to the garden type environment. You know, Satan's in chains and yet people who've lived through the tribulation period and were still alive, you know, they still have this sinful nature and they are tested. 
And they decide they're going to, just like Adam, just like Eve, they're going to follow after in this rebellion, following after Satan. And so they all go, and verse 9 says, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And everyone's like, oh no, what's going to happen? Ah, God versus Satan, you know, it's the yin, it's the yang, who's going to win? Okay, verse 9 tells us, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Oh, it's not two equal powers fighting against each other. It's the God of the universe against his created little minions. Who's going to win? God. Fire comes down from heaven and devours all of them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the judgment of Satan. And if your life has been affected in any way by Satan, we should all say, woohoo! Okay, only a couple people have had their life affected by Satan. So I can understand the timid joy. Uh, but uh, of course we know we all have, cannot wait for that day for Satan to be judged. And after this moment comes a time called the Great White Throne Judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in them. Now here, this is the process of the resurrection for the non-Christians. All right, They have a different resurrection. It says that the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, praise God. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So here we have a bittersweet time. We have a a very sad, grievous time where people who rejected the gospel are judged and they're cast into the lake of fire. They've never been in the book of life, never been saved. Then we also see something wonderful happen where the dead, the dead, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. It's there that we read of the death of death. In Revelations 21, 4, it says, God will, this is speaking of the new kingdom, this is the new Jerusalem, this is paradise forever, where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I want to make it personal today. There shall be no more death in this kingdom. No more death. Can you imagine that? Does your heart even hope in that? No more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. The curse of death that has had its effect from Adam will be done, will be gone. Now, E.G. Ladd, who wrote the book from 1975, I mentioned it last week, called uh, I Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus. He wrote in his last chapter called Why It Matters. He says, If his body is moldering in a Palestinian tomb, He cannot be the exalted Lord, cannot be the victor over his enemies. He cannot destroy his last enemy, death, for death has destroyed him. The Christian profession of the Lordship of Christ is a hollow echo. Remember the context of all that we're reading today is the resurrection of Jesus If Jesus never rose from the dead, all that we're reading about the kingdom being delivered over to him, conquering Satan and killing death, would never happen. We'd have a sad story, a sad ending. But we know from verse 20 of our text, but Christ has risen from the dead. Amen? And if he has risen from the dead, all of this hope of the resurrection of the saints and the hope of being with him in his millennial reign and actually ruling with him, being part of his uh, you know, uh, judgment over Satan, 
being there during the great white throne judgment and being with him in all eternity in this paradise where there's no more death. It's not a hollow echo for the Christians. It's a resounding shout for us of victory and triumph. Verse 27 says, For he has put all things under his feet. It's a quote from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. Total conquest will be the, the story of Jesus. This reigning over all things will be complete at the end of the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, when Satan, the wicked, and death are all destroyed. Verse 28 says, Now when all things are made subject to him, that's Jesus, when all things are made subject to Jesus in his kingdom, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So Paul looks forward to the time when all things are resolved in Jesus Christ, and he presents all things to God the Father, giving glory to God who authored this eternal plan of the ages. It was so cool to be in elders' prayer this morning, and Kevin prayed out just this wonderful gospel truth that each person in the Trinity was involved in the plan of salvation before the foundation of the earth. Each person had a work. It's just an incredible thought here. And we see that this is the end. This is like the glorious end of all of the gospel. Is that the victorious son. Who has been sitting at the right hand of the father for the last 2,000 years. He's going to come back as he promised. He's going to put all the enemies under his feet. He's going to rule over them. Fulfilling all the prophecies of the son of David. He's going to conquer all of his foes, all of his enemies, and he's going to just culminate everything under the authority of the triune God. And it's interesting because we have in verse 28 the work of the Son happening here. He subjects himself willingly in his role to the Father. But then that word God in the end is a, it's a word that refers to the Trinity. All right? The plurality of the Godhead. That the Godhead, you might read it, may be all in all. I like what Gordon Fee says. In raising Christ from the dead, God has set in motion a chain of events that must culminate in the final destruction of death and thus of God's being once again, as in eternity past, all in all. All in all. Now don't be thrown off by... Wait, in the Trinity, there's like different roles and subjection. That's not a bad thing. That's something wonderful that God has created into our society. Charles Hodge says, The son of a king may be the equal of his father in every attribute of his nature, though officially inferior. So the eternal son of God may be co-equal with the father, though officially subordinate. We see the son subordinate to the Father. We see the Holy Spirit subordinate to the Son. Though they're all equal in worth and value and glory, each person in the Godhead has a different role. Now, this whole idea of all of history making its way to this wonderful kingdom of Christ that we're reading of today uh, E.G. Ladd in that 75 book, 1975 book, just wrote something that resounded in my heart. I've been thinking of it all week. He wrote, The resurrection of Christ is the only key to the meaning and goal of history. All right, can I read that one more time? The resurrection of Christ is the only key to the meaning and goal of history. You remember, all of history works its way towards the, uh, the redemption of a sinful people to the glory of God where he's going to set up his kingdom and he's going to rule and reign for all eternity. But if in this process of history working towards a, a redemption of a people and this man Jesus comes on the scene to redeem his people and to die for their sins and he must be holy to make that atonement. He must be spotless. We know only God is that one. That if he died and stayed dead then that would be the end of redemptive history. There was no victory. There was no good news. E.G. Ladd goes on to say, 
it is a commonplace among contemporary scholars that of all the religions in the ancient world, only the Hebrew religion was a historical religion. Most ancient religions were essentially not sure religions built upon the recurring cycle of the seasons. The Hebrew religion was based on the confidence that God acted in history both to achieve for himself and achieve his redemptive purpose. Because God acted in history, he was the Lord of history and would bring history to the kingdom of God. You guys, this is a, a, an incredible truth. We are part of this Hebrew historical faith where we can go to the places where God acted on behalf of his people thousands of years ago and in times since then we can go to the location that's named in the scripture we can go to the geographical area we can see that what he told us was true we can see a mountain that's right where god says the mountain is that is burnt on the top to a crisp because the holy fire of god dwelt there when he gave his law to his people you can go there and you can see it and just at the bottom of the mountain is a giant rock that's been split down the middle and uh, enough water came up out of this rock to make a riverbed and a lake that would provide life for a million people in the place that the Bible said Moses struck the rock, it broke in half, and water came out and gave life to the million people Israelites. We have that. We are an historic faith. Nobody else has that. Contemporary religions with ours, such as Mormonism, has a bunch of made-up myths and made-up places that if you go to where they say that it is today, there is not a scrap of evidence, and their leaders don't know what to say to explain it. It's the same with Jehovah's Witnesses and Buddhism, part of this ancient religion that just goes with the swaying of just men's minds. And let me tell you that Jesus is a historic individual that came and walked on this earth, he met with historic men and rulers of government such as Pontius Pilate and Herod the Great. In fact, Herod the Great tried to kill him. He's a historic figure that is not dead. He's risen from the dead and you can go to his empty tomb today. All of Jesus. I'm not trying to be like, Christianity is better than this. All right. I'm just telling you it is truth. And I hope you want truth. I certainly do. If I'm lying, if this isn't real, get me out of here. I got other things to do. So do you. Let's look to truth. And if Jesus is not risen from the dead, all of that's been working its way out in history for him to rule and reign would have been for naught. It's over. But God is risen from the dead. Verse 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Is anybody else going, oh my gosh, we've been talking about the resurrection of the dead and the kingdom of God coming? And then all of a sudden, Paul just thought he put, now make sure that you don't date any non-Christians and don't be hanging out with any people. You know, what's he talking about here? Remember that the Corinthians were buying into worldly philosophies, Greek philosophy and wisdom from this world that says, are you an idiot? You believe in the resurrection? He's going to go on to say some of the arguments next week we'll look at it how stupid you are to think that bodies will raise up from the dead what are they going to raise up like you know night from the living dead like you know that's what people think well what if you're cremated you know you're so stupid to think that you can resurrect after you're cremated and people are buying into these philosophies yeah that's dumb it must mean something else in the scriptures jesus probably didn't really rise from the dead people are buying into it and the company that you are hanging out with that is placing and pressing into your mind and your heart false doctrine, I'm telling you this, you will be corrupted. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. If you have someone in your world, in your life, that is speaking into you and you're being tempted to buy into it, false doctrine that is not in this leatherback book, you run away as fast as you can. We have a door-to-door -door ministry right now. And yesterday we went to a gal, Johnny went and spoke to her. And she's been meeting with the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
And he was able to say to her, man, I just want to just lay down a foundation for you and you can test if the Jehovah's Witness sits upon the foundation that's thousands of years old, or if you want to buy into something that since the late 1800s is something that some man created and thought up and completely goes against this book. And he just went and he spoke, and she just was astounded that there's such a difference in these two different faiths. And it was incredible because she just ordered the, the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses was too small for her to read, so she ordered uh, a New Living Translation, which is very accurate for a paraphrase. And so we're like, praise God, read that, read that one, okay? And she wants to meet and be taught the truth. And today I had a girl come up after the service. She too has been, uh, she was a Mormon who's been excommunicated from the Mormon church. She's uh, followed Buddhism. Uh, she's uh, now meeting with Jehovah's Witnesses. And she says, today I've never felt such truth spoken over me, something that's historic, something that's real, and there's power behind it. And you know what? There's power behind this truth. There's no power in the Mormon religion. There's no power in Judaism that's, that's divorced itself from Jesus Christ. There's no power in Jehovah's Witness. There is power in the name of Jesus because he is God. All right? So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Evil company. Evil doctrine. Linking yourself to those with a false truth, which is no truth at all will corrupt you. It will corrupt you. I told this girl today, just run. Just tell these Jehovah's Witnesses you don't want to meet with them anymore. Don't try to argue with them. They'll win the argument. I'm just letting you know. They'll win an argument. You don't know yet what to speak. Just say, I can't. I need to get back to my Bible. I need to just read my Bible. Verse 34, Awake to righteousness, and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. We're going to close here today and have the worship team come up. Is Johnny back here? Okay, cool. And we're going to just set our things aside right now. You know, I realize that there's probably... Uh, people with, you know, Mormon backgrounds here and Jehovah's Witness backgrounds and Buddhist backgrounds and, you know, New Age backgrounds or whatnot. And I'm just in humility. I come with this message. I'm not trying to just bash people. That's not my mission at all. I want you to know the truth. I want you to know the truth. I want you to see that there's freedom in the truth. And, you know, these other religions, they are all faith where man must work himself to God. In fact, in Joseph Smith's retranslation of the Bible, one of the most incredible passages about being saved by the grace of God, not by works, he actually twisted that verse to say, we are saved by works. This complete contradiction of the original language. And that's something that every religion will always try to do, is to get you to try to make it on your own. Just try to be a good person. Just do it on your own. Do it on your own. Do it on your own. Where the, the scriptures tell us you can't do it on your own. But there's someone who came who has done it. And his name is Jesus. And he lived a perfect life. And if you would just believe on him in your heart and receive what he has done, he lived a perfect life. Just receive his perfect life into your life. Then you will be forgiven. God will remember your sins no more. And then he's going to give you the power to obey now. He's going to give you the power to live now. That is the gospel. He's going to give you the power to live and to seek after him and to know him. And he's going to move you towards this great and wonderful kingdom that we've taught on today, the kingdom of God. But if you want to rebel against this and just keep being stubborn and say, no, nope, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it my way then I must tell you, you are destined for certain judgment. And this is not something to play with. This is a judgment that will last forever and ever and ever and ever. And after a thousand years of being in hell, when you think you're finally tired of it and you'd like to change your mind, I'm sorry. You have no chance. For all eternity, you will spend that time in a place where there's no God because that's how you wanted it here. The fool says it in his heart, no God. I would say to you today, no God. No God. He wants you to know him. 
He wants to be known by you. But you must humble yourself today like a little child. I'm aware that in Islam and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Buddhism and just, man, the list goes on and on. These are all family faiths. These are all, man, grandma taught us this and grandpa taught us this and mom and dad taught us this and this is how we've lived for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Man, that's a hard thing to have just a confrontation against today. That's a hard thing. But Jesus said, you know what? I came and my message is going to bring a sword. It's going to divide you away from your family. People that reject this truth, they're going to reject it. But he's talking to you today. Follow me. Follow the truth. We're going to come up to the communion table and we have some bread and some juice. And these are things that are symbols of Jesus' blood and Jesus' body. And the idea is when we come to the table, we want to remember what Jesus did for us. We want to remember God's justice and that he doesn't just wink at sin, but he judges sin. But we also would remember today God's mercy and that he sent his son to be our substitute. And we remember those things as we come to the table and we realize, man, I'm a man of sin. I'm a woman of sin. We've got unclean hands, unclean feet, unclean eyes. But look how much God loved us. Man, that makes me want to run away from all those unclean things and cling to God more and more. Cling to God today as we take communion, as we take the elements. Remember today that Jesus is no longer on the cross Here at Calvary Chapel, we don't wear crucifixes around our neck, you know, where there's a little Jesus body and it's like pinned to the little metal cross. Why do we not wear those? Because we believe Jesus isn't on the cross anymore, you know. We believe he's not in the tomb anymore. We believe he's at the right hand of the Father. He's praying for us right now, the Bible says. But he's going to come back. He's going to resurrect the dead. and He's going to rule and reign in power. And where are you going to be today? Why don't we all go and and grab the elements of communion and bring them back to our seat and let's ponder these things. If God's showing you sin in your life, confess it to him, receive forgiveness from him today. But let's not partake. Let's all partake together today. Okay? I feel like the Lord just has one final word for us. But let's sing this last song about the cross. Let's consider the cross. Let's remember what Jesus has done and we'll partake together uh, in just a moment after everyone's gotten the elements. Come on. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.